Hi everyone, welcome back to Hypothesis. I'm Killian. I'm Amandine. And today we're going to talk about the philosophy of science. And for the first time ever, we have a guest. Um, his name is Matthew. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Matthew. I study uh, molecular medicine in Trinity. So very, very different course to Killian. <laughs> pretty much not the exact same course with a different name, pretty much. <laughs> yes, I don't even study philosophy, so it should be, it should be so fun. The perfect guest. Yeah, so what is the philosophy of science? It's basically just briefly a branch of philosophy concerned with the scientific method, its limitations, what science can tell you, what it can't, you know, how to interpret your results, what do they even mean, what even qualifies as science, and whether scientific reasoning can be justified at all. Yeah, and uh, the science of philosophy has a long history, going back even to Plato, people like that. Confucius, I think, had some thoughts on it too. Um, and then it had sort of a bit of a revolution in the 20th century. Um, so we're just going to talk broadly about the theme of philosophy of science, because it is probably something that's worth knowing about if you're a scientist or someone who's very interested in science. Um, so yeah, We Matthew, don't really learn about it as well. No, like, I, actually, I don't know that much about it. Yeah, I know that so, the year after we started science, they started bringing in philosophy of science modules yeah, into our course. Typical. So, uh, <laughs> of, of course. So we're compensating by doing a podcast on it instead. Yeah. Um, and Matthew's going to be the lecturer almost. Uh, oh, so yeah. No, no pressure. Uh, no pressure. Yeah. So yeah. off you go. It's, 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 really, it's really interesting stuff. So it kind of sounds, you might think it might be a bit artsy fartsy, but like the history <laughs> and stuff it is really cool. I kind of got to remember, like the, you know, the um, the 18th and 19th century science was kind of a bit of a wild west. People doing like horrifically uh, unethical things and some things which just like weren't science at all. You know, mm -hmm. like you've got at the same time as like people discovering like the electron and Einstein and stuff like that. You also had people inventing homeopathy, you know, mm. so people were thinking at the time like what the hell is science like at the at the same time you've got people doing some pretty like cool things and people doing some stuff which was just like complete quackery so like the thought the thought of like how do we know our knowledge is like sound that was a question that started right like i think it was in, like the 1700s david hume and all like that it was called the the problem of induction where basically they knew there was two ways of knowing things. And the, uh, the first way was deductive reasoning and the second way was inductive reasoning. So I've, been, I've actually been asked to give some shout outs by some, some <laughs> hypothesis fans. So I'm going to be <laughs> dropping some names here. So deductive reasoning is that you can, you can generate like very much factual, true, objective knowledge, but it comes with the drawback of being pretty redundant knowledge. So say you have two statements that you know are 110% true, just because, just by definition. So yeah. say everyone from Donegal is a culture <laughs> and you have someone, Lorraine is from Donegal. So therefore yeah. with those two statements, you know, they're both true. You can yeah. say Lorraine is a culture. <laughs> Lorraine is from Donegal. Everyone from Donegal is a culture. Therefore Lorraine is a culture, but that's not really like groundbreaking. You wouldn't hardly, you'd hardly really call that science or like useful information. Like the, uh, the no, example, everyone knows that Lorraine's a culture. Exactly. <laughs> if you speak to Lorraine, you know, you know, yeah. it's just how it is. Um, and there's a second type of, of reason called induction. And that's where you try and take observations about the past and 
make predictions, you know, based on like based on past events to future events, see if they'll like hold. So say you know everyone in the past who studied molecular medicine <laughs> is a complete genius. You know, they've won Nobel Prizes, nature publications, you know, fellows of the Royal Society. <laughs> Literally, these people are all absolute like God geniuses. So you can you can take that like huge body of information and you take a molecular medicine student named Connor, you might very well think, right, based on my past experiences with molecular medicine students, Connor might be a genius. So an inductive person might say, right, Connor, Connor's a genius. He's in molecular medicine. They're all geniuses. That's how it works. But we know that's not really the case. You know, it just so might happen that Connor is a complete imbecile. <laughs> so, um, and, and essentially, that, that, that proposed, like that, that is a quite a, a big issue. And I kind of really didn't really go solved, you know, through all of the 19th century. And that's when you get things like chiropractic and homeopathy and Dude. all sorts of different like quackery and stuff. And um, it was actually a chap in, the, in like 1920s Vienna who sort of figured out what a science is and um, what science isn't. And that chap was Karl Popper. So he was a philosophy student and like, don't hold it against him because he was pretty cool. He wasn't just like you know, the arts block students today, you know, sitting around wearing ducks, smoking, you know, he was getting work done. He was doing important things with his life. <laughs> so essentially, no hate, no hate to the arts block no people. Hate. No We're hate just jealous. We're just jealous. I wear ducks too. Yeah, some actually, hit, some same. <laughs> I'm wearing ducks right now. <laughs> but anyway, Carl, he was he was thinking about like, so basically after the First World War, Vienna was full of a lot of like different intellectual movements. Like you had people like Sigmund Freud doing psychoanalysis. You had Marxists doing Marxist things, and. Also, there were, you know, theoretical physicists like doing this crazy work that I have, I have no understanding of, but it's, it's really cool anyway. And essentially, he was thinking like, these people all claim to be doing science. Marxists claim to have like a scientific understanding of history and economics. The psychoanalysts think that they have like a scientific understanding of the mind. Mm -hmm. And the physicists obviously think they've got a scientific understanding of the universe. But... Mm -hmm doesn't really work out that way because they're clearly not all doing the same thing. So Karl Popper had this idea of falsificationism, which is where basically he believes science isn't about trying to prove your theory right. It's about trying to prove your theory wrong, which is like completely yes. topsy-turvy. You're thinking like, well, scientists are always making claims about like the world, like this, this new coronavirus vaccine works they don't they're not going out and trying to disprove that surely it doesn't seem that way for a lay person anyway but Karl Popper was like no that's exactly what they're trying to do and that's exactly how science should work because for, like trying to prove something wrong is actually a really really good way of getting really really strong claims about the universe so basically to start with the really the, the pseudosciences uh, as he calls them they don't try and prove themselves wrong at all so basically you take so his first example was Marxists. The Marxists 
have this view of history as being this struggle between like working class people, the proletarians, and like the bourgeoisie who control them. And basically all of history is a cyclical cycle of workers are oppressed, they rise up, communism, and then the cycle repeats. And basically the Marxists were taking all of these, they were cherry picking examples from history to, to prove their point, but they were ignoring all the times in history when that didn't happen. So essentially, mm -hmm. They had there was there was evidence that their theory was wrong and they were ignoring it. And another example was Sigmund Freud and his like psychoanalysis. So Freud was really into how does the mind work, what are dreams about and stuff. And he had a theory that your dreams are what you really really want, like your deepest mm -hmm. desires, which is really weird because like yeah, I've, yeah. I can't relate. Uh, I've I've had <laughs> dreams of falling down into a massive massive hole, and I definitely yeah. don't want that. You know, that's no, not same, what I want. Like, Sigmund Freud obviously never had a nightmare but yeah. <laughs> he had a patient it's like a weird it was a weird story so like he had a patient that was really upset about not wanting to go on holiday with her mother-in-law I think mm -hmm. and she kept having dreams about going on holiday with her mother-in-law and Sigmund Freud with this like devastating blow to his theory like his this evidence just proved his idea wrong he just like turned around and was like, oh, no, my theory is still right because I think she wanted to prove me wrong. So she did get her desire and her dreams anyway. Mm. Just like, you can't, you can't do that. Like, it's just like moving the goalposts. It, yeah. It's yeah. exactly, that's, I mean, that's completely it. Like, yeah. it's just a really, really dumb way of doing things. And uh, <laughs> like, I can't get sued for libel now because I think Sigmund Freud is dead. So. Yeah, he is. <laughs> You're safe. <laughs> We're safe. Um, well, basically, Einstein had made a claim about the universe that light was affected by gravity. And basically, you could test this. Um, so essentially, this, this theory that light could be bent by gravity could be tested at a solar eclipse um, where stars that would have been behind the disk of the sun would be visible to observers on earth because the light coming behind the sun would like get wrapped around by the sun's gravity. So essentially mm. you could test his idea. You could, you could try and prove it wrong. Mm -hmm. And if they couldn't have seen those stars, Einstein's idea would be wrong and you could, you could forget about it. It was false. But if you couldn't find evidence that he was wrong, that strengthens his idea. Yeah. So essentially, a bunch of astronomers went, looked at a solar eclipse, and they did see these stars being bent around the disk of the sun. And like, voila, they had, they had, like Einstein's idea had been put to the test, and yeah. it, they hadn't actually managed to prove him wrong. So that's his idea of falsificationism yeah. was that every idea in science can be put to the test. And scientists try and prove them wrong. So, you know, that's how we test drugs. That's how we find secular, cellular mechanisms, you know, different genes, the whole lot, all the way from like geology to like astrophysics. That's how science does and like should work. Hmm. Yeah. That's like, that was, that was a really cool thing about Karl Popper anyway. Yeah. I mean, Karl Popper, yeah, from doing a bit of reading about him, he seems like a very, very interesting guy. Um, one thing, like the whole idea of falsification, I think is great. And I do think a lot of modern science is completely built on 
the idea where it's about proving things wrong, like you said, rather yeah. than proving things right. Um, and even the fact that, you know, a lot of experiments have like the null hypothesis that they're trying to, you know, work on, like that, that's all based on falsification in a way, yeah. all, all that kind of thing. Um, and one thing I thought was really interesting when reading about Karl Popper was he compared this idea of falsifiability and how it uh, precedes science to uh, evolutionary theory, which I, which of course I love. I love obsessed evolutionary theory. Evolution. <laughs> I'm obsessed with evolution. So I know Amandine's also going to love this because she's also obsessed with evolution. But yeah, he essentially created this formula. I won't go through the whole formula, but uh, basically that just like in evolution where you have slight mutations that lead to then you know some kind of advance towards a more fit uh, phenotype it's yeah. not saying that like this phenotype is the perfect phenotype like there is no yeah. perfect organism in the world that's mm -hmm. perfect at everything um but... were they're gone now <laughs> um, they, they were quite good but uh, but yeah it's all about <laughs> they being obviously adapted. weren't good enough if they're not here anymore. that's the thing so they weren't perfect um, wow that's but, actually disgusting so it's all about you know the perfect so not the perfect but the best phenotype that you can do at that time yeah you know through mutation and he said this is how science should work so let's say you have a theory mm. and then you have a hypothesis if that hypothesis is explaining it at the moment grand we'll go with that if someone proves that wrong okay what's the next most fit idea the one yeah. that's harder to disprove so you keep going until eventually you know, if it is possible to find, you know, the so-called truth on a particular concept, you will eventually find a hypothesis that doesn't um, get destroyed by, you know, um, something proving it false because it can't be proven uh, yeah. false necessarily. Um, so, yeah. So after many rounds of theories and hypotheses and all this sort of stuff, you eventually find what is closest to the right answer. So we'll just have to accept for our own sanity, that it must be the right answer. Otherwise, you know, because we'll never know for sure. A lot mm -hmm. of things you can never know for 100% sure. And I think that's some, sometimes, I think, from, from talking to art students and stuff, that is something that they find a bit frustrating about science that sort yeah. of carries itself as this search for knowledge and truth when really, you know, of course, there's no way we can 100% know a lot of our things. But mm -hmm. if there's an extremely high chance, like over 99% chance that it's right because everything else doesn't explain it, that's good enough for me. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, um, I think so too. Yeah, and, and I think that whole process of disproving ideas again and again to try to find the best one is just really exciting. Um, you know, it's a it's a really interesting part of science, and I think that comparison to evolutionary theory, which is in a way testing out ideas of organisms to, mm. to particular environments, is actually a really nice comparison to draw. So I like that. <laughs> um, it kind of does make sense. It know? does, yeah. Um, and another like, thing... uh, the best. Oh no, go ahead. No, it's like the just like the that ideas can have like a fitness as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's true. Like ideas, they did evolve over time. Like you know, age mm. like ages ago when, like I don't know, like Greek gods, for example, like that was kind of like their science. Like what controls lightning? You know, oh, yeah. he's obviously mad, so he's sending lightning. And then we're like, okay, maybe not. And over time, you actually, you know, you start proving things and disproving things and the ideas evolve to, oh, no, lightning isn't actually because one god got real angry and, like, decided to throw his lightning bolt down on us. Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, speaking of gods, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was reading about then his... He, he, he had an interview where he talked a little bit about religion, but his condition was... Um, this is Karl Popper still, by the way. that um, You don't release what I said here until after my death because he didn't want to be sort of throw out his, this opinion that could be controversial. 
I think partially because he was from Jewish descent, he had to flee Nazi Germany. I suppose he, you know, understandably didn't want to sort of be throwing out these kind of big statements that would be seen as perhaps atheist or agnostic and yeah. offend, you know, the people that obviously, you know, have been through a lot with him and he was part of that community. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially he was uh, sort of talking about um, religion in this broad way and he, he basically doesn't agree with organized religion and he thought that, um, you know, it could be respected because a lot of those things, even though you can't necessarily, you know, find a proof, he, he thought that because all of them are essentially saying the same thing, you know, just this higher being that's doing all these things and you can't prove it false because a lot of them say, oh, well, it's everywhere. You can't actually touch or feel it or whatever. Yeah. So he claims that because they're not falsifiable claims that they're essentially not worth talking about. That That's why he said he was agnostic. But because you can never 100% prove that there isn't some being out there, he would he preferred the term agnostic than atheist himself because he said, even though you can't prove either way, he would be more inclined to think that there's nothing because it's not falsifiable. So therefore can't stand up to science and isn't worth talking about in a scientific context, um, which, which is interesting. But then he yeah. still said it's worth respecting people who do believe because it does have that sort of, you know, balance and a lot of people obviously care a lot about it. He wasn't one of these militant atheists who just <laughs> trying to offend people. He edgy, was, he was edgy 13 year olds. Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> compassionate about it, which is definitely a much nicer way to be, you know? Yeah. He was very careful with his words, um, which is good. That's kind of an interesting one as well, like, because you can't really falsify the existence of a God. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, and it's kind of one of those ones where, you know, if you did go looking for like scientific evidence of a God, it's so easy to, to, to move the goalposts, mm. you know? And that's a big thing you see with like so-called creation science, which is like a really big pseudoscience in some parts of the world. Yeah. Where, there, sorry. Oh yeah, no, go ahead. No, it's just a side note. I don't remember what the actual thing was, but I was reading there in the biology book, there's like this quote where it's like the earth was created. Like I'm just gonna make up because I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was like the earth was created 322 like years ago at like 4 15 p.m. or something. <laughs> where do you do you guys remember reading that? Oh, or where I that think I think that's um it was it was is just that, is that hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or am i wrong oh no my no <laughs> i'm <laughs> not sure no i think like... no this is like it was a scientific thing like they were they were proving that the earth was created at this time and this yeah i i don't remember <laughs> obviously i probably shouldn't have brought it up because i don't remember any of the details that sounds bizarre <laughs> yeah but i just remember reading that thinking it was the most it was so funny like, were they trying to make a point about how you couldn't show that or how it wasn't oh yeah yeah no it was just oh, trying right. to it was just showing like in a biology book from today and just like an extract from oh, from an old a, biology an book. old biology oh, book or right. whatever yeah okay that makes thought. a lot more sense i was like yeah. what kind of modern biology <laughs> book without that I um, know. yeah classic <laughs> anyways but yeah oh. I, I think uh, there's a lot of these you mentioned homeopathy at one point and that's obviously something that uh, in the past i was very passionate about fighting i am not a fan of homeopathy i'm not afraid to say that uh I've, yeah wrote some articles and stuff about it but anyway the falsifiability thing is interesting in that context and one thing that actually a fan of the show brought up with me yesterday um they, they asked if i would talk about uh something like acupuncture because they were having a debate with their flat about acupuncture. 
and wanted us to sort of cover it. And from doing, uh, some, I, I, after getting that message, it got me back into what I used to do, which was someone would mention something like acupuncture and I would go, that, that's actually something I should look into. And I would spend a couple of hours just reading random like meta-analyses and big review articles from experts on these mm -hmm. topics. And that's what I did last night after getting this question. <laughs> I stayed up, stayed up late reading those articles. And it's funny how for something that's so widespread and has such a long history, you know, yeah. acupuncture, there's still no definitive answer as to like whether or not it works. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's very <laughs> iffy. Even among experts in the field, they were, you know, these articles, they were interviewing like professors in some of the top universities. And you had a professor at one hand saying, absolute rubbish, don't talk to me about, about acupuncture, it's not a science. Yeah. And then you had someone else in another top university saying, yes, it does show some signs of working in particular pain relief scenarios for, mm. for certain cancer treatments. So then, you know, uh, it does seem to still be a debate. And the reason I thought to bring it up here was because I think it does actually tie a bit into the philosophy of science, because it's one of those things that's very difficult to prove either way, because it's very different to, let's say, a, let's say you're taking a pill for pain relief. Yeah. So you're testing your drug in a trial. So usually you have these things called a double blind placebo trial. So mm -hmm. that means the doctor giving the person the drug and the patient themselves doesn't know whether or not it's placebo. So sometimes it's like a sugar pill, sometimes it's the actual drug. So you can see are the effects based on the patient thinking that they're being treated or are they actually something that the drug is doing? Now, how do you do that with acupuncture? Because if you're saying, you know, the thing with acupuncture, let's say, you know, poking people in certain spots or whatever, how do you fake poking someone? It's not quite the same, yeah. but they yeah. have come up with some ways. So they came up with something called sham acupuncture, where they have people who are like, you know, so-called experts in acupuncture, which again, depending on which side of this argument you fall on, you could say, no one's an expert in acupuncture. It's a load of rubbish. Or you yeah. could say, oh, they are experts. Yeah. Anyway, they go back to these points where, you know, from ancient times, they know poking people in certain points mm -hmm. give better effects. So they teach some people to do acupuncture in the wrong way poke at points that are nothing to do with acupuncture just to see do the patients get the same benefit because then you can prove in that way is is it those points or is it just the fact that you're poking because if it's just the poking then it's probably placebo effect yeah but the problem is again it, it's not double blind because you don't they don't teach someone sham acupuncture and tell them it's real acupuncture they just don't seem to be doing that that seems to be something that they're not okay with doing put away someone's life like <laughs> yeah. yeah they don't want to change career yeah so they actually i think they train actual acupuncturists i believe to do, to it, do wrong. it to do it wrong so the, but the thing is then the person giving the therapy knows they're doing it wrong so they might either in the way they're doing it or the impression they're giving to the patient yeah give off a different vibe and that could be what's seen in these slight differences because a lot of these big trials i was looking at a lot of it wasn't big differences like even the trials where there were patients going through a lot of pain from certain cancer treatments and who got relief from acupuncture it wasn't like they went from loads of pain to no pain you know yeah. the effects were mm. small so it could be contributed to placebo but again because we don't have a proper way of testing it you don't know for sure but now mm. after this conversation i'm wondering do we sort of throw acupuncture away because until we find a way to test it because no. it's is it is it not falsifiable or is it eventually i think you know? that even even a placebo effect is better than nothing oh definitely know? and but like then... in a lot of cases placebo is is actually even better than 
an actual drug, you know, in some cases. In, in some cases, I think for some things like pain relief, which are slightly more psychologically based, then you can have pretty big effects from placebo. But uh, the reason that I would even, you know, think about throwing it away is because there are adverse events associated with acupuncture. Even though they are quite rare, some of them can be lethal. That was another thing I read in reviews. There was a few, there were a few professors who came together and wrote this review article who were saying, um, yes, it's very difficult to, to tell. There are, there's some evidence that it works, but here's some evidence of when it goes wrong, it really hurts or can kill people. You know, what, so, what are they experts in? Are they like, or like professors in, um, is it like medicine or something? Or yeah, is it... I, I believe it's medicine right. and those related yeah. disciplines. It's, uh, it was all stuff got to do with uh, tissue injury and that kind oh, of field. Right. Yeah, yeah. So not something I would be a complete expert in or anything. I was trying to read the expert analyses and trying to be unbiased. And I did see that it is very much like even the experts don't agree. So I'm not yeah. going to come here and say, oh, it's <laughs> X or Y. I don't yeah. know. I just think it's interesting that it's a field where it's an example of something that is very difficult to prove. So can the philosophy of science help us find, well, what's the best way to prove it? If we can't do a traditional double blind placebo trial, is there some other way to test something like this? And maybe that's more of a philosophical question than a science question. Mm. Um, You know, that is an interesting one. I mean, I know, I know in surgery in some, in some cases, because of course, surgery works like medicine. They do, um, randomized control trials and yeah. in some instances they do sham surgeries yeah so i've really? heard that before it's crazy wait what's yeah. that like they just it's like a placebo surgery like yeah, they open like you they're... up and just just do nothing stitch you back up nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't even know what they do like do they even cut you open or they must they must yeah because, because you I mean, need to you yeah. have to have a wound you know yeah. otherwise it would the you know placebo would be would be up that's um, bizarre i mean I don't know like without without a very concrete you know mechanism of action that we can be even somewhat confident of is it something worth pursuing yeah I think so yeah I think it is too because you know even though I used to be I'm a very skeptical person and I used to be, I remember someone brought up acupuncture before and I completely shut them down. I was just like, no, there's no mechanism. It's a load of rubbish, blah, blah, blah. I just sort of took one side of the argument that I agreed with and stuck with that. Now I'd like to think I'm a bit more nuanced in how I think about these things. And also because I now knowing more about science, know of more examples of things that we don't understand the mechanism, but we know it works. Yeah. You, know, you don't necessarily yeah. always need to know the mechanism. Um, you guys aren't going to believe this, but I'm going to bring up an adjuvant. Oh, um, so, <laughs> surprise, so, surprise. Yeah, the adjuvant alum, which is the most widely used adjuvant in the world, really good at promoting antibody responses. Like millions of people around the world have been vaccinated with this thing. And we don't know how it works, but we know it works really well and it's yeah. really safe. Yeah. And it's the gold standard that every other adjuvant is trying to get to the same level of like, you know, antibody stimulation. But we don't know how it works. Does that mean we shouldn't use it? No, because we know it's safe. So yeah. that's the question it's you know balancing those things as well like we sh- it, it doesn't mean we shouldn't investigate the mechanism we should because we'll learn a lot from it yeah um but then again for these things like acupuncture we need to weigh up these things like safety because if we don't know how it works it has slight effects and the safety concerns then maybe it's not worth doing but if the safety concerns are minimal i'm not sure how big they are then it probably is worth doing because even that placebo effect as amadine said is worth doing yeah because it makes people feel better 
Um, what what were the did you find out what the adverse side effects were when they were like oh they were really bad like, uh, no it was yeah there were different types did of they die did you say someone died from it yeah it was, it was rare up? they had it, it, this was like a meta-analysis so a, a yes, study yeah. of studies and yeah. they found just a few cases and each of those studies had like you know lots of people I can't yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. hundreds and they found just a few people though but a few people had died and right. that but that was from acupuncture done wrong I should say mm, it wasn't okay. like some it wasn't people who were like well renowned for acupuncture these were people yeah. who were doing acupuncture who did something wrong and accidentally infected the person is usually what happened yeah that's what i was thinking these things yeah that weren't if they're not completely sterile or yeah. your technique is wrong and you accidentally get something into a wound you know Oof. so yeah it's something that is worth weighing up because the placebo effect is great but not at any cost you know if there's if it's done yeah. the right way it, it's good so yeah there's just there's a lot of things to weigh up there it's, it's interesting yeah it's it's kind of like like chiropractic as well because i think generally speaking it's it's like you can attribute it to placebo but there are not a trivial amount as well of people who would you know suffer strokes and things like arterial dissection and all these nasty side effects from something you might think is quite benign are you talking about chiro stuff chiro yeah chiro, like, i don't know how you say it chiropractory like, <laughs> as chiropractor like stuff <laughs> chiropractic adjustment chiropractic uh, yeah i don't know yeah no i do know that that has a very negative history of uh, lots of side effects but people still swear by it in many parts wait of the what world. is chiropractic sorry i'm outing myself what um, are you talking about I, <laughs> it's essentially i believe you can correct me if i'm wrong matthew but uh these I, I'm, who... I'm the expert <laughs> <laughs> no you go ahead then oh no 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 yeah i'm, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> bone wizards to be yeah honest. that's what i was gonna say yeah. okay yeah it's where they crack your bones yes. and your back yeah, yeah okay because i literally was watching videos on snapchat today <laughs> of that i was like no that's so scary where they proper yeah. get on their back and like jump on them and you hear the yeah. cracks yeah that's, that's so okay good i just i didn't want to talk about it in case i was talking about the wrong thing <laughs> that stuff's scary but yeah. my granddad actually does that kind of he's done that before and, and it helps you you know you stand there and you cross your arms over like onto your shoulders and they just like hold you and lift you up and it just like cracks your spine i actually i don't know it's uh, seeing it on other people and hearing the the crack, the crack. that's not that scary <laughs> but yeah, some, people, find, some people like that some people like watching those videos and hearing you know, the cracks they, they were like there was like a girl lying there and your mom just grabbed her head and like pulled it out it's like oh yeah. no i wouldn't oh, no. yeah no you'd want to be going and, to someone that knows what they're doing yeah but, the uh, adverse effects for that one would be pretty bad i'm pretty sure it can lead to like paralysis if that's done well wrong. yeah if you're yeah. Oh, yeah. getting nerve or something I don't know. Uh, I'm not yeah, not something I'd, I'd be into pursuing myself, but, uh, you know. Yeah. I'd say if they I know think, what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I'd take that risk. No, I think I would. In, interestingly, I think an awful lot of these things kind of stem from that early time in science when, like, medicine was in its infancy. Things yeah. like homeopathy and chiropractic adjustment or osteopathy or whatever, like, in the 19th century, their therapies would elicit like a placebo effect and sometimes as we say a placebo is better than nothing but yeah. a placebo is also better than harm and a lot of the times the 19th century medicine would be harmful like bloodletting yeah. oh my yeah. god that's, yeah. so, that's so bad and i think i i, I, I don't even know what they used mercury for i think it was honestly a couple of like venereal diseases 
things like syphilis. Yeah, that's what they I would like well. inject you with mercury. I yeah. mean, like, God Almighty. <laughs> it was like short term. <laughs> yeah. I think it fixed it like short term and then long term, obviously. <laughs> obviously not. <laughs> not so good. But like, yeah. in, if you've got two options, like a therapy that's going to make you worse or a therapy that's going to perhaps make you feel better in the short term. And those are your two options. Yeah. You know, it's the 19th century. You know, you can see why things like homeopathy and chiropractors became yeah, and yeah. actually, so it's, really, it's, it's really interesting that you mention that because when I think about it, a lot of these things like acupuncture and homeopathy and chiropractory or whatever you call it, um, <laughs> a lot of those, their popularity, like obviously there are people who go to them for all sorts of things, but in general, their popularity tends to be for diseases where, or conditions where there is no good treatment. Yeah. You know, like that. And that's what makes people resort to these things. It's like, it's not necessarily saying these people who do that are saying, oh, I completely 100% believe in this. Some of them do, but a lot of them, it's like, well, this might be better than nothing. It's worth a shot. Yeah. You know, the fact that all these trials I was looking at for acupuncture, they were looking at it in cancer. I'd say, you know, it's not because acupuncture is most effective in cancer necessarily. It's because a lot of people who are going to try something like acupuncture will only do it in that kind of situation where they feel like I want to give something, because depending obviously on the type of cancer, sometimes you know, the treatment options are quite limited or they are quite aggressive because yeah. for the, the yeah. thing I was looking at for acupuncture, it was more about the patient was getting aggressive chemotherapy, which was their only option. And they wanted some pain relief. And so they went to acupuncture and it made them feel a bit better. So that's completely understandable. And I think like even other homeopathy sort of things, it's people who have these, a lot of times have conditions that are difficult to treat turn to those it's only the, what, what annoys me is when it spreads beyond that and people start promoting homeopathy to things that do have very effective safe treatments and then yeah. those people get roped into the conspiracy of it all and they start actually putting themselves and others in danger that that's where i start to yeah. get, get quite passionate about that kind of thing <laughs> but uh, you know to say that all these things have absolutely no basis at all and shouldn't be done anywhere and should be outlawed that's probably something i used to believe but uh, after doing a bit of reading and understanding a bit more of the philosophy of science, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, this, I, I think well, it's a bit more it. nuanced. Yeah, I, like I'm still very much against them in a lot of cases, but there are cases where, again, placebo kind of things are better than nothing sometimes. Yeah, yeah. and you got to bear in mind as well, especially with things like homeopaths. You know, when you go to see a homeopath, you get to have a conversation with them yes. that can last like an hour. And, yeah. you know, they might be telling you stuff that's evidence-based, they might be telling you stuff that is quite common sense, like you need to take exercise and eat fresh fruit and veg. And I mean, that actually is valuable advice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we've all been to the GP and oftentimes due to like all sorts of different pressures and, and, and patient load and everything, they can only spend like 15 minutes or less with you. And, and unfortunately that means that, you know, your interaction with your, with your doctor who's practicing evidence-based medicine can be quite limited. Yeah. And people can feel that, you know, like, well, I went to my doctor and I felt snubbed, but, you know, my chiropractor or my homeopath spoke to me for like half an hour about why I'm feeling stressed or whatever. Yeah. And that ties it back into the psychological placebo effects because you feel better because this person is taking their time with you, you know, yeah. and they're really discussing your issues and that kind of thing. So then that probably has broader implications throughout medicine, you know, that maybe there are, you know, different ways we should be looking at treating patients beyond just 
what drugs do we give them that sort of thing the the psychological care and how yeah, do yeah you... that's really important especially yeah. in for like genetic counseling for example like yes that's, something that's a that's massive really field growing. right now it's really yeah. growing because like if say for example you're going to get tested for whatever genetic condition you have first of all do you want to know that you have it if it's going to be if it's potentially you know oh what's the word it's going to end your life and i don't know like terminal terminal that's the one like do you want to know that do you want to know how long it'll take will it be passed on to your children things like that and if you just tell someone that information they like they might not be able to cope with it and so that's why yeah. you would be have have genetic counselors that are there to explain what it actually means because the other thing is you might not even understand what it actually means like if i'm okay you have an x-linked condition that means that you're going to have this isn't this okay what does that actually mean who's going to have it in my family how will i know like are my like siblings going to be affected my cousins affected their children like who do you tell and yeah you need to have the sort of support network in place of genetic counselors and the family and everyone because some people as well they like for example let's say me and my sibling you know we're both going to get tested maybe one of us wants to know whether we have it or not but the other one doesn't like that's really hard and another thing that this is kind of just a side note um that we learned that when people say get tested for something uh, like a, a genetic condition like that you and your sibling get tested it tends to be that the person that doesn't have it the condition uh is more severely affected mentally and they sort of get mm. that sort of guilt of like yeah. oh my goodness i'm fine but my sister she is you know susceptible she's at yeah. risk of getting this condition and that can be really that survivor's well. guilt kind of thing yeah so yeah. survivor's guilt is tends to be yeah quite extreme wow. i think compared to the sort of yeah instead of like actually having it yourself because mm. if you have a condition you know okay i need to deal with this just and get on with it you know like yeah. i need to go yeah. to the doctor i need to do this but if you're the one sitting beside them being like how do i help them I, like i can't like that can be really tough so yeah. yeah if anyone wants to be a genetic counselor that's uh <laughs> that's what you'd be getting into yeah, and it's, that's it's a big field a much, at the moment that's a much better description of genetic counseling than i've ever heard to be honest oh. I, I didn't actually know that much about it before and that makes yeah. a lot of sense now that I, the, the I general gist yeah. well they they know everything about well i don't actually know fully what it is that's just my understanding of it i could yeah, be completely no, that, wrong that, makes but sense. that they have that sort of genetics background medical background and also then sort of like therapist ish vibes kind of mixed in of like you know how to deal with it and everything because yeah. it can be really scary knowing you have something not knowing if you have something knowing that a sibling a parent you know a partner has something um and it can be hard to deal with especially if you're just going to you know a doctor that doesn't necessarily that isn't necessarily specialized in that because obviously they need to learn about so many other things as well not necessarily just your condition um but yeah that's just a side note <laughs> that yeah. I thought I would bring up. I think yeah. it does tie in with like, you know, so like science is all about generating knowledge and um, it's really good at that, obviously, because I mean, look, look, we're talking on Zoom now <laughs> and all these amazing advances, but like, what do we do with that knowledge? Yeah. You know, how and do you, how, like, it's all well and good telling someone, right, you are a carrier for like the Huntington gene, mm-hmm. but like that carries a massive social and like psychological burden yeah yeah and the other thing is like not trivial at all 
with when you're saying about having so much information out there there's so much data at the moment we're like in the age of data oh my god I don't even want to go into it because it's so annoying so many numbers I don't want to go through it but also I think the interpretation of results is kind of important when you're looking at something like um you know does this gene affect I don't know this protein whatever I feel like that's kind of a yes or no answer you know you can test it but for things like that are more psychological for example like does a lead to b lead to c when there's all these sort of when it's not a direct link it can be really hard to actually understand the data you're generating and what do the results actually mean like you know there's that that study okay i don't remember the exact details but it was something like measuring iq of people in america and it was like measuring like the the study is literally it's um or the, the famous graph is like a, a bell curve and it's like, it just says white. And then there's like a tiny mini bell curve at the bottom and it says black. And it's like white people are smarter than black people. That's, that was what their results were. And no one disputes that those are the results they got, but then their interpretation of it is clearly incorrect. You know, yeah. it was all, there's so many other factors when you're looking at certain things like, you know, socioeconomic factors, who are you actually testing? Like, how old are they? Did you give them the right sort of questionnaire? Um, so yeah, even though we're getting so much data, interpreting it is important and interpreting it the right way is important because otherwise you can come up with some Terrible freaky, ideas, yeah. yeah, some bad. And, and again, this comes back almost to Carl Popper's idea of this fitness of ideas. Like, yes, yeah. you can present your data and then let's say you present a hypothesis that, is a load of rubbish and you have someone else that comes along and says here's why it's rubbish yeah i'm proving you wrong then yeah. their hypothesis takes over and so on and so forth exactly. so but the thing is when you have so much data you're gonna have so many hypotheses mm. and you're gonna have a lot of stuff going on which is yeah. kind of what science is like at the moment um there's a lot of new hypotheses all the time about many different things and it's hard to know what to believe so we just have to chip away at it uh theory by theory and uh and, and try to find the truth and i think that broader philosophy of science question of like why do we do science at all it's yeah. very interesting that a lot of people think you know science is this uniquely human trait at least in in earth <laughs> that, that we can yeah. see um and i think that that's just really interesting like what is it that makes us want to do this is it a, a real pursuit of knowledge just for the sake of knowledge is yeah. it ultimately that we're trying to help people in some way even something that seems abstract is it at the back of our minds, do we think that this could help a person someday? Is it about helping our community? Is it about just our own thirst for knowledge? I think that that's a very interesting thing. I because... actually, it's funny that you bring that up because I actually have been thinking about that. Like, what's yeah. the point in like, not that <laughs> I'm second guessing or anything, but just like, why am I even, why would I do science? Like, why would I do anything, you know? Because a lot of people, they, the reason that they want to say do science is because they want you know drug discovery or study medicine or just, just do things that are going to help people and when I look at the things I'm interested in science I'm like it's not necessarily like I can't see the direct link of how it's going to help someone so mm -hmm. then I'm like am I even justified in wanting to do that or is there even a point in studying that and then you know sometimes I would bring it up to someone like oh I like this and they're like oh well actually you know it actually affects this for example if you're studying because i obviously undo my project in plants like why is it even important why is it even relevant who cares if the gene were like turns on in this plant or not at this point in time but actually then it can have implications for say you know crop loss you could use it to make transgenic plants maybe to create a treatment for plants that'll turn on resistance genes so that they might not get 
killed by pathogens you know things like this because yeah that is actually something that I have been thinking about like why am I even interested in that like animal behavior why would why do we care if you know these monkeys want to groom each other or whatever they do I don't know um but yeah it's just funny that you bring that up because I actually have been thinking about that a lot um but yeah I think helping people tends to be the most popular answer but um I think just wanting to know stuff I think that's valid yeah yeah. I think there must be a like an evolutionary you know drive maybe not for science but wanting to know stuff I mean like there's a reason yeah. we've got these big brains yeah you know uh, evolution didn't do that for for no reason and I mean like I know I'm just freestyling here this might be absolute <laughs> quackery but you know brains are so metabolically expensive there's yeah. so many species yeah. out there that get by with so much simpler brains yeah. than than ours there must be some advantage to being able to collect huge amounts of data which our brains can do yeah. and process like seek patterns find patterns you know find i don't know useful useful information out of this like yeah sea of i don't know experiences that we're constantly having you know maybe maybe are like early ancestors in the savannah, the ones that could, you know, figure out. God only knows, like how best. To, probably, probably maybe like a hunting thing. Like if you yeah. can, if you yeah. if you learn how to track animals, that involves a lot of information. So, a tribe that can better and more reliably track down. I don't know. I, I will the beast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're going to survive better than their neighboring tribe. I yeah. find it really hard to reliably find and catch will the beast. You know, they catch will the beast every now and again, and it's great. <laughs> but like, yeah. the guys who can really figure out, like, right, that's a track. That's fresh poo. Let's head north. You know, like they're going to be the ones. Yeah. That just sounds like a typical edge. weekend for me. <laughs> Honest to God, just how that's how being on him. wow yeah i think it's also recognizing situations and knowing how to react this i don't even know where i'm going this but just knowing how to react in a situation be like oh like this is a novel situation but it's actually really similar to this other thing that happened to me so i know that if i react in this way this is what's going to happen you know like if i hear a rustling um okay it could be a lot yeah I'm just gonna run because last time I heard a rustling my friend got eaten by whatever so this time when I hear rustling I'm gonna get out of there so I think that's another thing that I don't know if other uh animals can do that I'm sure they can but that's something that I know we can yeah I I can do that communication Uh, actually it brings me on to completely random things I remember reading about the evolution of alarm call signaling and I just thought that was so interesting that's probably something for another episode but like uh you know when certain animals hear a threat meerkats yeah meerkats and things like that where how how did they evolve to like let's say be the one that's shouting at the alarm call because in some situations yeah a lot of the time they do but how, but it's still difficult to imagine why that would evolve from a fitness standpoint because surely any animal that does the alarm oh, yeah, call yeah. is driving attention towards itself and is more likely to be eaten yeah but then there are all true. these theories of like actually it's more that your genes are likely to pass on not just through your family oh, members yeah because yeah. Yeah, part of it was a lot of the alarm call individuals are actually the elderly so they, they've Ooh, already passed on their cool. genes 
so they're, the best way to protect their genes because they're going to die soon anyway is to actually help their children by calling out when there's a predator coming and putting themselves at risk and i was like damn that's, that so that's rough and, uh, <laughs> and then there's another thing as well that in some species it wasn't the elderly so they were like okay so that theory doesn't hold up what do we do here and it turned out that actually like it was an eagle that was attacking. I think it was this meerkat population. Yeah. And they found that actually when the alarm call was sounded on, on time, no, maybe this is a monkey thing. I can't remember. Anyway, when, they, <laughs> when the alarm call was sounded before the eagle started like eating any of them or swooping in, the eagle gave up because it knew that as soon as the alarm call went, up, went off, it wasn't worth its energy chasing all these meerkats or monkeys or whatever it was oh, I think that, it were, was that were running around. Yeah, maybe it's meerkats, but I don't know. Because, all all because... the second years listening. Oh no, are they second? Yeah, second years listening. Is, this can is... Let us know. <laughs> yeah, I remember we did a little bit of that, but I remember doing just because I thought that was interesting. I'm pretty sure that thing I read in a book myself that wasn't actually in second year lectures. So if you're listening in second, well, year, how would I know that about isn't it from then? Lectures. I, I probably books. told you at the time. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I definitely <laughs> went on a rant to you at the time because all we talked about in second year was evolution. So, yeah. <laughs> so sad, sad existence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's a bit of a tangent, but I swear it yeah. still ties into philosophy of science. Yeah, actually, like, I think so. Speak. Tangentially, yeah, yeah, like it is. But I mean, I think science almost certainly like evolved as well because you gotta remember. Um, I was reading a book recently. What was it called? Science fictions. It was written by a guy. Uh, yeah. It was mostly about, about psychology. Um, he was doing his PhD in psychology, and like his opening gambit, like the first page was that like science is a social construct, and like don't throw the book away. I'm not going to make some like point that like some super duper dock wearing arts block point that like science is a myth and that like scientists are making it all up. But like science is something that we kind of all agree to do as yeah. scientists. Like there's no agree actual scientific reason for us to publish in journals or to peer review each other's work. We just oh, all no. agree that, that I actually like, do is think a there's a reason way. to peer review, <laughs> to be fair. Oh, there is, there is, but it's like there's no universal law. It's not like a it's yeah. not like the law yeah. of like gravity. It's something we all agree to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, as like I, a social thing. What really baffled me, or like the more I learned about science, the more I learned is that it's all made up. It's not like you know, it sounds really bad, but like we just made up the fact the species thing really got me. That's what actually yeah. really got it in my head of like, what is a species? We just made that up. Like there's no they don't agree on a way to define it, you know, like what makes something what it is. Things like I don't know, like mental disorders, like like how do you group them if you don't know the cause of a disease like irritable bowel syndrome as well like you don't know what it is it's just they have these symptoms so let's just put it in this group and let's call it that but we don't actually know what it is and maybe there's lots of different things involved and that's why for example like psychiatric drugs might only work for some people and not others because there's a different cause but they even they still have the same symptoms so we call it the same thing and yeah that's just a, a big thing in science which is like we don't really know let's just call it something and let's make it a thing yeah um, a lot of the but... problem is that in a lot of things it's treating the symptoms rather than the cause because you're cause well you yeah haven't, haven't found the, the root cause and that kind of thing but you mentioned peer review Matthew and I think that's yes. something that in philosophy of science is probably worth a little bit of a few minutes talking about I think a lot I delve, maybe, delve into it <laughs> I think a lot of people outside of like science like I think even until like maybe third year or second year at least I didn't really know anything about peer review. I just heard it was this thing that makes science more uh, good. 
yes more good yes more good more good <laughs> brilliant so, so yeah uh just very briefly i suppose what i understand peer review to be is essentially when as the name implies, your peers review. <laughs> um, yeah. so, like here, uh, read this thing I wrote yes. and then you read it and you're like, sounds legit. And it's like grand. Published. Yeah. So to get your research published, you have to get past um, other scientists, usually in your field, who read over your work and make sure it's not a load of rubbish. Because um, the, if they're in your field, they should know, for example, certain experiments you're doing might be familiar to them. Yeah. Certain practices they know to look out for. So they'll know, is yours a robust study or is yours something that has holes? Because they might have done something similar that got rejected. So they'll mm -hmm. learn about what the holes in these ideas are. And I think that's a really interesting idea that science isn't just like, you know, someone in a shed throwing stuff together and saying, you know, oh, look, I discovered this thing. It's lots of people looking at it and critiquing it. And, yeah. <clears throat> and again, it's about falsifiability. They're almost, these reviewers are almost trying to prove you wrong. Yeah. That's pretty much their goal. They're looking That's... through it being like, where is the mistake? I'm going to catch this person out. That's so and... sad. But that's... All your work. And they're yeah. just like, no, that's, that's wrong. From... Nope. And from all the like science Twitter memes and stuff, that's from what, that's what I understand. Reviewers are very harsh. And that's yeah. how you keep science robust. Yeah. You know, how do you expect science to be taken seriously if you don't treat it that strict, you know? So uh, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. And from the one experience I've had of a peer review scenario, <laughs> the, 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 uh, the review was quite strict and it made the paper better. It, yeah. it really did. You know, it wasn't necessarily pointing at mistakes, but it was saying, well, would it not be better if you turned this paragraph into a table instead, or if you yeah. added a diagram on this, on this? And it was like, well, that's a load more work. Thanks for that. But also <laughs> it was so much better and so much easier to read. Mm. You know? So I, yeah, I think peer review is a great thing and it can probably be brought to many things outside of science. I think yeah. from something like it's, that. Um, it's definitely adds to science a lot because I mean that's one of the things about science being like a social construct is that it is such a social thing like even when you when you see a paper and there's like 10 plus authors yeah. so they've all worked together and then it's gone off for peer review and as you say like it's been beaten to death by like yeah three I think it's usually three isn't it yeah three experts in the field and generally speaking they will like I know like right now I've got uh paper in a student medical journal so it's kind of it's like a baby version of like proper academia and it's currently being like it's they really grill your, your stuff yeah like they make sure and I mean and it's good because I mean I can't read my work yeah. from the perspective of someone who doesn't know what I'm hmm. talking about yeah yeah so I mean and also of course I it was a review that I've written so in terms of actual scientific work they also like suggest more work for you to do yeah and like that sort of thing i'd like to be at a level where i could read a paper and be like that experiment doesn't sound like it worked do you know or like yeah. they could have done this a different way that was easier yeah that's really interesting like lecturers are always like oh try you know be skeptical you know would they could they have done it a different way what experiments do they actually use i'm like do you think i read the materials and methods section like i don't know <laughs> like, i don't know what they did no but um yeah i just yeah. think that i would love to be at a level where i could be like oh yeah they did it this way and okay it worked but they actually could have done it that way and it would have been way easier and it would have given them better results or something like that yeah um, from, from what i understand undergraduate learning doesn't usually teach you that kind of thing uh, no a lot of the time the people who look for that kind of insight which is more the core academic stuff yeah. Um, it's not really talked about till PhD level from my experience. The only time yeah. I've 
heard people really critique methods and that kind of thing was when I was in a lab with PhD students. Yeah. And between them and the supervisor, they were critiquing papers and I was like, wow, they, yeah. they really know what they're talking about, you know? Yeah, because I haven't a clue. Yeah, because there's a paper Yeah. I guess you learn by immersion as well, of course. Yeah, I think that's you're actually, it's you're almost, doing the experiments. You're like, yeah. well, I know if I was doing that, that, would, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So yeah, yeah it's all about experience for sure. I guess it's like, a, what do they call it? Like a hidden curriculum, you know? Yeah. Like whenever you talk to people in the year above, obviously we're now, there is no year above for us. But like yeah. whenever, whenever in like second year, you talk to the third years and they'd be like, oh, this is how you tackle this, yeah. this problem in this exam, you know? once you get to academia you're kind of drawing on the experiences of people who've been publishing for years and it's kind of like that and it's passed down almost that yeah, yeah. exactly standing on the shoulders of giants well that's literally that's what they, <laughs> wow, that's what they so say inspirational. That, that's if you want to suck up to your supervisor that's what they say. <laughs> exactly anyways um i have a question or two for you matthew if that's okay oh yeah regarding i'm, the I'm certain science. i'm certain i'll be able to, to answer them very well <laughs> Well, one of them you should be and there's at least one you should be able to answer is is why you're interested in philosophy of science because i know that you are quite interested obviously that's why you got you to talk about it but what got you interested in it or like what is it about it that kind of drew you in it was a bit it was a bit random like i was yeah. it was in second year and i was in hodges vegas and yeah. there was a little book stand and there is this book called the meaning of science mm-hmm. by tim tim lewins i think he's a professor of like the philosophy of science and in, in a not too sure which university it is perhaps somewhere in the uk yeah um i think i'm gonna get i'm gonna get sued now <laughs> <laughs> but um i saw that and i was like it just piqued my interest yeah and when i read it it was kind of like wow because Certainly, and I'm not dunking on science education because I've really loved the degree. Yeah. And first year of like university level science, they kind of have to do just teach you the basics. Yeah. Like, because let's be real, there's no there's no doubt that genes exist. There's no point doubting that genes exist. Where is that? <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of you kind of yeah. have to um, you kind of have to be spoon fed. So maybe yeah. I was a bit like curious about some deeper stuff, and it just came at the right time. It was like you know this is how we know that science is actually like legit you know you can actually be confident in scientific findings because of like falsificationism because it's such a powerful idea you know yeah yeah um and sort of then kind of building off of that do you have any like but you obviously have that book but you have any other like book recommendations or youtube videos or podcasts or anything that people certainly certainly the meaning of science by tim lewins and science fictions let's see it's on my bookcase here somewhere <laughs> i can't see it science fictions Rip. will do we can science find it by, and we'll put it in oh, there. No. by stuart ritchie by stuart ritchie it's right. a it's it's basically it's a book not really about the philosophy of science but more how science has kind of become not really what it's set out to be in many ways there are certain practices within science that are you know not particularly the best. So an example that he would have talked about, and like in this this chap, he's not like a an anti-vaxxer, an anti-vaxxer or a quack or anything. Like he's very much paid up, interested in science and academia, mm-hmm. believes it all. But there are certain things that like, um, you know, how the kind of publish or perish um, mm-hmm. attitude to, to how academia works is kind of problematic. Yes, how we've just is... chosen not point not five as like, the standard for proving something for, <laughs> yeah. for proving something hey yeah. that was i think that was just a dude in the 1920s was like 
a one in 20 chance is a pretty good, pretty good <laughs> bet, in my opinion. And since then, we've literally all just jumped on that back. I, I do think that is certain this slightly changed. I've, yeah. I've, I've heard that yeah. in a lot of the top journals now, they don't appreciate that as a significant and There are difference. some studies where you do need to change that. Like the yeah. genome wide association studies, there's so many, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to, is it a thousand, like thousands of people involved in the study? So not point five, like you're obviously going to find something, something yeah. by chance. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, they adjust it, but that's true. Yeah. Zero point, I don't even know why I do that, but just <laughs> randomly. We just do. Write down. It just happens. Alpha equals yeah. 0.05. Yeah. Like it is interesting. Like we can have these really strict, what's the word? Like um, philosophical basis for how science works. But then sometimes it can be a little bit, it can go astray, you know? Mm. It's not, it's, yeah. it is a social construct. It's all of our duty to make sure that it continues to work the way it should, yeah. you know? And perhaps some, some aspects of it should be changed. I think his like draw, like his, like thing he was saying was perhaps scientists should do work and, in, and peer review should be more democratic. So rather than you sending off your science bits and bobs to a journal, you then send it off for peer review. You upload it strictly to a preprint server where it can be peer reviewed by practically anyone. And yeah, then that's a that massive thing right now. And of course, like I've, I've, especially in like the COVID era, exactly. it's, a, it's a really yes. big thing. So essentially you upload your work. It's critiqued by not just three people, potentially many more. I don't know. It, it's a, it's a, it's a number, any number so, you yeah. want <laughs> we'll, we'll say we'll say uh we'll say six that's yeah. that's twice three that's quite a lot <laughs> and um assuming assuming that like loads of people comment on your work and you get really good constructive criticism this is how it's supposed to work in an ideal world obviously there's going to be people commenting mean things but such as life you know you would then with that like really rich crowdsourced essentially peer review put together a much better paper than your original one yeah. And then you can think about uploading it or submitting it to like a journal to be formally made public or whatever. Mm. But it would be more so about the peer review rather than the publication. Yeah. Now I'm probably probably gonna get attacked by Stuart Ritchie now. He's definitely gonna be like, Wow, you bastardized everything I said. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do here. Yeah, you I mean, in court, Matthew. <laughs> that whole idea of open access science and stuff is a probably tell before a whole other things so that's a yeah very interesting, it's very yeah very interesting area that's really starting to blow up now science has become more and more open and a lot of the top journals haven't really moved with the times yet but there's a lot of pressure on them to do that yeah um because there are lots of illegal ways to access research papers these days um and a lot of people are using mm -hmm. them and not yeah. paying their publication fees but oh well such, uh, i don't it. know about you but i pay the i pay the 17 I pay the 70 US dollar access fee every time I access a paper. My, oh, good, uh, good, my, good for you. my entire dissertation cost me many thousands of euros because I'm so <laughs> diligently. Every time I click a link on a, and it comes up like, you do not have access to this article. I have to bust out the wallet again. <laughs> Here we go. No, it's mad. Like when you, you see those papers, it's like, is oh, crazy. this is like $36 and you get it for 24 hours. What? <laughs> Yeah, like, I know. I know some of them. It's like you get it forever, but like there are some where it's like, no, yeah. you get it for twenty four hours. Like, do you do you genuinely think I am smart enough to understand this in twenty four hours? <laughs> like, and also the amount of research papers that 
just don't contribute to your work even though you oh, think yeah. that you might oh yeah like you, you could like, pay to research, research, like, read an article and be like wait this is nothing got to do with yeah. my work <laughs> exactly no this is like as you say like i think this is like a topic for a whole other episode yeah, yeah. like it's just so it's just such so a people big know thing. it's not it's not all about illegal stuff there are legal ways to access these things for free as well a lot of the time if you email people involved with the paper they can give you a version um, it depends on the agreement they have with their publisher, but if you want to be very safe and secure about the way you're getting these papers for free, uh, I think contacting people a lot of the time, they'll be open to sharing the research, but that takes a lot of time. So a lot of people do not do that. Yeah, I never heard I, of that before. I, I emailed, yeah, I emailed a professor once in like second year. And um, let's just say I'm still waiting for that PDF. <laughs> so if you're, if you're considering doing your dissertation on this, you know, you might be a pensioner by the time you get it submitted, but, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway. To be fair, yeah, like. Yeah. Who would, who would open their email and see some, like, poorly written, <laughs> like, second year from the other side of the world? Because I think she was a professor in, like, Australia. So oh. it probably got caught in her spam folder in the middle yeah, of the night. Yeah. So who's going to fish that out and be like, yes, yeah, so I'm going to retrieve this PDF for this randomer? <laughs> I'm yeah. sure it works for a lot of people, though. Oh, it does work Just a lot of time, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, is there anything else do we need to talk about the philosophy of science before we wrap up? No, I think we can leave it there. Right? Yeah, I think that's, that's actually a yeah, pretty productive. good discussion. Yeah, thanks so much, Randy, for coming yeah. on and talking to us. Yeah, no, thanks thank for being so our, for having me. Yeah, thanks for yeah. being our first ever guest. Yay. Yeah, because this was, this was really fun. Yeah. yeah. Might have you on you... again, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you're so good. Maybe. We might just have you back, just maybe. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) See you next week. See ya. Bye.